Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. And I also want to thank my listeners from all over the world. Never, ever give up hope is now heard in over 70 different countries. And it is this message of hope that the world needs and wants to hear. It doesn't matter where we come from, what our background is, what our financial position is, how much schooling or education we have had, we all are prone to problems. We all have problems we need and have to face. We're human. And so not one of us is immune to problems. And each of us at some point need the message that there is hope depending upon the situation that we're going through. And the great thing about the show Never Ever Give Up Hope is that there are such a variety of guests that you very often can find one that you can relate to totally or even a little bit that can help you in your particular situation. I've now interviewed over 100 guests and every single one of them has a message of hope with tips, encouragement, and coping skills to help us. There are so many aspects of this show that appeal to so many different people, and I want to thank you, all my listeners, for your comments, your reviews, and sharing of this broadcast. Thank you. Ellen Mongan is a speaker, blogger, and author of over 40 books. She is founder of Little Pink Dress Ministry, the co-host for My Miscarriage Matters Radio, and a frequent guest on WPBI television. She has seven children and 12 grandchildren, but she also knows the pain of losing a child, which has given her compassion and motivation to help others. Ellen says that the journey from trials to triumph is a hike that we need someone to stand with us who has the GPS. I just love that analogy. When we think of our life as a journey and someone can help us who has the GPS, and I know she's gonna talk about that. She now helps women to overcome eating disorders, date rape, postpartum depression, and emotional scars from abuse, and also just how to be the best they can be and how to find joy in being a wife and mother. She definitely has a diverse career. I know that she is motivated, challenged, and loves to share how, to, how she can help you. She's energetic, exciting, and I look forward to interviewing her. Welcome, Ellen. 
Hello, Carol. Thank you for having me, and what a great story you have as well. I enjoyed reading it. (laughs) Thank you. Now, Ellen, your journey, definitely, as you are going to be sharing, was one from brokenness to wholeness, and it wasn't just a brokenness in one area of your life. There were many areas, and I, I know I want you to be able to share with the listening audience today some of that brokenness. So can you tell us a little about that journey that you believe that our listeners would relate to, possibly starting with your anorexia? Okay. Um, You know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're out there listening and you feel like maybe you're broken, maybe you're broken, everyone is broken in some area, let's face it, Carol, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to address some of the ways as a young girl, if you have teenagers, can be susceptible to a brokenness by being a person that's a pleaser. See, I was a pleaser, so I went from brokenness to wholeness and also from pleasing others to just being a person that can stand alone on what I feel and believe. So I started out as a young teen, healthy and strong, like every teen. I had everything going for me. I was like captain of the cheerleader. I had a boyfriend. I was top student. And the steady boyfriend I had, I won't make name his name, but he knows, said to me, you look pleasantly plump. And I took it as I'm fat. It was the day before, it was the 70s, way before anorexia was a household word. And so instead of going like, look in the mirror, I was 105 pounds, you know, I look fine. I was like this. I don't look fine. I look plump. And I went from being a healthy person to a person that ate one Cheeto a day, drank a lot of water, and then when I wanted to eat, I chose meat to eat just to keep my weight so thin that I graduated high school at 78 pounds. That was very low from the time I was told pleasantly plump to the day I graduated, maybe less than a year, 78 pounds. And so I want to say that when I realized, you know, on that, that it was not the right way, it took a long road back. It's a long hike, you know. One more thing is that when a mountain comes in your life and you never saw it coming, and we never do, you have to really climb that mountain, first face it, and then climb it before you go from brokenness to wholeness. You can't ignore the mountain like it's not there. You can't run away from the mountain, and you can't run around it. You kind of have to take the climb. Now, at, with your anorexia, were you hospitalized at all, or did you were you able to turn your, that part of your life around and, and get healthy again with healthy eating, or what's your story? Well, it wasn't a short story. It wasn't like you read the golden books and then you're done from start to finish. It was a story that took me through a lot, a lot of suffering and pain, and then it boiled down to, in the end, you know how they say most anorexics are wanting control? Well, no. Mine was more of a vanity. It became a vanity to be thin. And what took me the journey was that um, in 1970s, I went to different colleges, and I was unable to stay because I tried it. There was a lot of drugs, drinking, and sex, and I was a person who wanted to be a nun, so that was not for me. And I became a stewardess down at Air Florida met my husband, a med student who loved me dearly and knew that I had anorexia and helped me to get healthier by his love to make me whole. But that really wasn't enough. You well know that. No one can love you into wholeness. Mm-hmm. You have to choose steps of health. And so then 
I, um, every time I got pregnant and I had eight children, I would get um, healthy because, of course, you're living for that baby to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And I would eat right. And then I would go back. On my fifth child, it was a, a kind of like a decision that I had to get better. And it was the lady really said that I was going to get healed of it. And I did. But it wasn't a step where I could just go like, okay, now I'm better. It was steps towards away from you know, brokenness to wholeness. Eating right, I have to choose to eat. I still do have to choose to eat. I never went back to anorexia. I never was bulimic. The choice was in choosing healthy foods instead of like just choosing foods and eating the meals rather than skipping the meals. So are you saying then, as an encouragement to someone who may be going through this kind of an issue with their own eating habits, is to make the choice to be healthy? Yes, and I and is making the choice is for each person a different thing. If you want to stay alive, healthy, and fit versus sick and anorexic, you still have, you have to eat the right foods. And I had to learn from my body and my my tastes. You know how we all have tastes. What do I like to eat, and then how can I eat the healthy things? For me, when I went through po- for that because anorexia led to postpartum depression. I'm probably jumping ahead, but it did because when you have babies and they, they're up all night and you don't have milk because you're nursing every hour because of not eating, then you go into postpartum. So one doctor told me that if I would eat meat, it'd be better for my healthy mind, you know, because your your mind suffers when you don't eat. So I did choose to um, eat healthy foods, meat, vegetables, the, the seven food groups we all know, and then I had to choose to um to exercise because both things will make you a healthy human being and sometimes we think you know gee exercise it kind of like do i take the time but when we exercise and eat right and take care of ourselves especially as moms it gives us the energy to take care of our family it's like a gift to your family so i did choose and i had to choose to um what happens to me to be honest carol i want to tell you that my um my son, the fifth child, is 30 years old this year. That's how many years ago I was healed of that particular brokenness. And um, I get I get nauseated when I don't eat now. I actually get sick, and I felt like it was a grace to be able to think, well, gee, my body's saying to me, I need to eat. And our bodies will tell us, you know, how we, you know, if we t- listen to our bodies, it will say, you need more sleep or you need, we have to be in tune with ourselves, like know yourself and know what your body needs. Because we, as women, a lot of times we'll choose to help others, our children, our grandchildren, our husband, and we'll skip ourselves and we'll be in last place. Right. But then we're really the loser, you know, we're not, we're the loser for last place. So that's what I do. I eat healthy and my kids will say, mom, you don't eat a lot, but they didn't know one Cheeto a day water all day long just to be thin you know now my focus is on being healthy and not being just thin and you know after eight children i'm 63 i look okay but i'm not 78 pounds you know i'm just healthy and alive and glad to be that's good now you mentioned that um postpartum depression has a connection with anorexia can you expound a little bit more on that Yes, and I want, I want to tell you that a lot of women will send their children or their, you know, their young daughters or people that know me will come to me for that because 
postpartum depression is such a stigma in this world. It, it, because of some of the women that have gone really, really over the deep and done some really things that were really horrible. But it is a something that happens, at least in my life. When you have a newborn baby, especially close together children and a lot of them, you don't get much sleep. And I didn't sleep the first 12 years, I'd say, of our marriage because we got pregnant on the honeymoon. Then we had our children less than two years apart sometimes. And with not eating and not sleeping and then all the things that go into motherhood, colicky babies, you just aren't taking care of yourself. So it went into, for me, because of the no sleep and no eating. And I do tell the women, you know, this is a time to, to to eat the right foods and just sit down when the baby has to nurse and enjoy your enjoy the time with your children that you that you have. Read a book and sit and nurse them. You know, rest up yourself. Having a baby is a health issue. You have to be healthy afterwards. It's not just like you know, old like magic wand. I had a baby now I'm fine. No, you have to heal and get better. It's not a time to jump into. You know, serving others is a time to rest up. I tell mothers to stay that one year, you and the baby and adjusting and not to outside things. Do some, but back off from all the busyness that comes with life and just enjoy that first year because that's what causes, I think, the postpartum. Busyness, eating wrong, and no sleep. Trying to lose that weight, you know. And so postpartum basically what you're saying is the same thing as you would say for any other health issue and that is to make right choices i think make right choices i had to actually um with the um with the eating disorder and the um postpartum i had to i'm going to say this for the women out there that want to know and if men get depressed too i had to take medicine when i was in the very depth of it it happened on some of my babies not all of them it did affect me a lot if the baby cried a lot and then I was tender-hearted, so I had to take my as a physician. I did take medicine on some because of the fact that it was more important to get better. And then after I got over the hump, you know, I didn't do the medicine. I do think that's a stigma either. Just like where diabetics take a special diet and special medicine, you have to be able to um, be humble enough to do what's best for your body. You know, there are people that that um wear themselves out trying to run the race to win. Well, the race is against yourself. And if you know yourself, you could take the time to, sometimes you push, maybe you have a, a conference and you're trying to push to study and then do well. And then sometimes you take a week off. And that's the, my, my motto is, for me, I was such a busy person. And now I take, if I'm giving a talk somewhere and I have to, you know, pray it through, say it, speak it out, and then give it. Then the next week, I lean out, I, I rest up, I go on retreat, I take some time for me. So, yeah. Loss of a child, huge subject. What can you yeah. share about that story of from the beginning to the end and how you, how you got through it? Well, I speak a lot of places on the loss of a child more than the other issues because... Um, when you have a baby in the days when we didn't have sonograms, we didn't see it coming, and we didn't know that our baby would die. And Pat and I are a little bit more, because he's a physician and I'm not a hospital fan, we would leave the hospital after an hour. So we were not prepared to come home without a baby in our arms after an hour. So that's a, that's a trial that, 
that almost is part of you and it wrenches your heart so deep of grief. And if you don't take the time to grieve, then you go into, again, the postpartum. But my baby died. He was um, a trisome 18 baby. Pat's a physician. It's very rare for the baby to even live to birth, you know, to be able to come, be alive. Zachary lived two hours. We were able to hold him, sing to him and love him, and even sing happy birthday, Zachary, as he went home, you know, to heaven. And we had 20 people in the room, and he was like a miracle baby. But I'm going to tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, it was not an easy trial. Next to all the trials I faced in my life, from brokenness to um, wholeness, losing a child is was the most difficult. And it's not because you question why this happened to me. It's because you really love, you know, you want to have the baby. You want to have him with you. And so I was able to, that time, heal because I was able to get, have a mentor a woman that would see me every week, not a not a counselor, not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but a lady that would every week stand with me and talk with me, even though it was as little as just to let me cry, you know. And that's why I do what I do, you know, mentoring mamas, because there's sometimes the mothers are unable. Maybe they haven't had a baby die. Maybe they never were a postpartum depression candidate. May they never had anorexia. And to have the arms of, a, of, of love around you saying, it's going to be okay. You know, we're going to climb this mountain together. It's going to be a hike. It looks too big. You're going to make it. And then one day, after you climb the mountain, you'll be helping other women to climb the mountain too. I would never have seen it at the time of any of those three brokenness trials that I would one day help other people. Because let's face it we have a trial come our way we don't think we'll ever get out of it we don't think we'll even with hope of like a a faith or a, a parent or we don't think we'll ever get up that mountain and down to the other end but oh the view if you get climb that mountain with one person on one side to encourage you and someone on the other side to give wisdom and grace to say you're gonna make it it's gonna be all right then you, you can see the clear view when you get to the top of being a person that is, you know, hard things, challenges of life, um, trials by fire. They make you strong and they make you um, a woman of valor, a woman that can stand up and say, you know, you're going to make it too. And it gives you such hope because it's one thing to read about in a book about postpartum, about anorexia about the death of a child. It's another thing to put on your hiking boots or your high heels and climb and get to the top and see the view. I am a firm believer in the fact that when we go through things, if we have, first of all, the right attitude, which is not always easy, and secondly, to take what we have learned in that situation to help somebody else, it brings the healing faster. And what could you give as tips for mentoring people who have gone through these kind of experiences, especially the loss of a child? Well, you know, that is that is a good question, Carol, because a lot of times people mean well. You see what I'm saying? They mean well. But when they say the wrong thing, a, a tender heart that's grieving or suffering, it's so hard that it sets them back pushes them down the mountain rather helps them climb. And so it's a good question to really listen up because sometimes just giving a hug 
at the line. If you don't understand and you've never been there, just giving a hug is the best medicine or a smile or a, a kind card in the mail or maybe a, um, a word of, um, of truth, like, like not just like they would say to me, I'm telling you this, Carol, and when you're that devastated, a loss of a child, they would say, oh, you have seven others or, you know, you have an angel in heaven. Mm-hmm. And they really, really meant well. If they would even say two months down the road from Zachary's death, um, how are you doing? I would weep. I mean, I was not ever a crier. <laughs> I would weep like my, I was weep like I was mourning the loss of a husband. And so sometimes it's never what they say. It's just, you're so tender. You're so broken. And so I think just the hug and the, the letter. And then maybe a phone call. Is there anything I can do today? Or I, I made you a meal. And when you have a baby, at least in my, my situations, my mom would come for a week, my mother-in-law for a week. My husband would stay home a little bit, hold the baby. When Zachary died, no one came. My mom barely made the funeral. My mother-in-law came in for a few days. And then I was left alone with my little two ones that were home with me still. And I was there to face like the laundry, the cooking. You know, we have a large family. It's like seven loads a day. It was like I was left all alone. See, so one lady came. She had been a church member. I did not know her name. I did not know her. She knocked at my door. I don't know how she found me. And she came and she said nothing. She just gave me a hug. And that's how I know. I never forgot that. She was an older woman. You know, like I'm older. I'm 62 now. And she came and hugged me. And it was. I knew that she meant well. Another person, I will never find out their name, sent me a card that I quote a lot of times in my talks. It said, they who know the deepest sorrow know the greatest joy. And at the time when I received it, it gave such healing words that, you know, you go through hard things, then a gray day, it's okay. You know, when you go through easy things, you have one drop of rain, you think. My picnic is ruined. Life is over. But when you go through hard things, first of all, you don't say, get a grip, you're fine. And Pat and I were get a grip parents. You don't say, what is wrong with you? It's only a baby. You have others. You have an understanding heart that wins people to know that if I need some hope today, I'm calling, I'm calling them. You have a, you walk around with, with, um, a heart that draws people to be the one they call if they, they're down. And I am that person. I, I know for a fact, I put little messages on my phone. We all do. Some will say, hello, it's a so-and-so. I usually have a, a sub message that's encouraging, like, um, different isn't always bad. Some is different is better. And I have had people call and then they hang up. They go, oh, it's just calling to hear the message. It's people need hope more than they need not more than they need air to breathe, but they need hope more than they need a, a ton of friends. They need hope because so few people give hope. You know, they oh, it's going to rain. Oh, it's going to be a bad day. We Those who guard their tongue with words of encouragement, hope, and love and kindness are the ones that bring the healing to the hearts that are broken. And it's not like it's not like you plan it. It's when you go through tough things. You begin to grow either a heart of understanding, loving kindness, and a guarded tongue. Or you grow a heart of bitterness, and all you do is say, yeah, happened to me. It was terrible. (laughs) You see what I'm saying, Carol? So the words bring life to the soul. This too shall pass. 
Oh, I love the, that. See, that's that word that, you know, you think about it. What do people say when you walk away? You know, hey, Carol, I just love that Carol. They say, whoa. So a well-guarded tongue is a gift, really, like a, like a good name. Now, I want you to repeat that quote you gave. They who know the deepest sorrow know the greatest joy because the joy, you know, fills your heart because a gray day can happen and you think like this, nothing went wrong. <laughs> it's a great day. You know, I tell the women that I go walk with, you know, up the mountain that I mentor, you know, it's okay. A great day will be like so great when you when you get past the depression, you'll have a day that's not good, it's not bad, and you'll go, yay. <laughs> Could you tell me if you have encountered this, and I'm quite sure you have, in mentoring women who have lost children? How you deal or do you deal with those who are angry? Oh, I have had that before as well. Angry, I, anger is, you know, I was a person that thought I did not get angry. So, of course, that makes me what? Judge the ones that do right. and think that, whoa, what's wrong with them? But I would get bitter. See, I would get, I'd wait till three or four things and then, explode like a volcano so the way i handle the women that come to me about anger is i say first of all i think it's best to write down all the things that bother you and all the things that you're especially if you're going to confront someone you're angry with and to write the letter but not send the letter and get that out of your heart you know anger is such a huge emotion now I'm not afraid of anger in myself, you see, because I re- recognize that, whoa, okay. some people that get bitter, they take so much and then blow up. Angry people just get angry right away. So I do. I, I tell them to write it down and then not send the letter until they've read it over a couple times. I don't know if you're a letter writer, Carol, but sometimes you write the letter. You're going to send this to so-and-so, and then you don't send it because you realize it was out of your emotions and not really what you wanted to say. But I will write letters often to my children, to my husband, to my priest. I write letters when I'm upset about something. And I have learned through different mentors and wise women that first you put three positives like, you know, we're such good friends and I just love the way you've taught me this or that. And then three of those and then you put in the middle, sandwich it in. But, you know, this really has bothered me a long time. Can we talk about some way that will work for both both of us? And then I put the ending, you know, like, but, you know, I hope this doesn't affect our friendship. Surely we can work this out. You, I treasure, you know, our relationship. You see, so we have to get it out first before ourselves. Like, I don't know, I, I heard this great, this great lady recently I met. She had a, a grandson that was angry. And she said, you can't say those things to your mama. You just look in the mirror and you say them out loud. You tell, look in that mirror and you say that. And sometimes by saying them out loud, even adults, we think, well, that's stupid. Or, gee, that I really love that person. We can kind of hear those angry words come out of our own voice and go, whoa, I'm sure glad that wasn't my friend I was yelling at. That's funny because I do the exact same thing. And I've been doing that for as long as I remember, uh, even as a child, when my mother was dying and I, and I was so angry. I was angry at God and angry at, you know, just having to be in that situation and having, having to just deal. 
and I would write letters, I would write poetry, and I still do that today when I am upset with somebody, exactly like you said, and I can't stress enough what healing that brings, because it helps you to lash out and then look at it again the next day, the day after, and if you are still going to send it, you're going to definitely change it because you're not in the same emotional position that you were when it first happened. And I also love what you said about putting the positives in first. I always do that. You're my friend, but... I knew we had, knew we had a connection, brother. First, when I said, I, I, when I said, I, Pat, check this lady out, and the, and the email went to you by mistake. <laughs> I go, she's all right. Remember, it was so cute. Don't you think the written word, like poetry, letters to a friend, even a birthday card, and it comes from the middle of your heart so that... But then your anger also comes comes out there, and it could be something you wish you'd never said. So you rip the letter up, you burn it, and you say, hmm, time to rewrite. I write best to the beach. <laughs> now, I appreciate what you said, but, that, but I think you may have misunderstood my question, so I'm going to ask it again. We were talking about the loss of a child. Someone has lost their child, and mm-hmm. usually I think one of the first people they get angry with is God. And mm-hmm. so how do you deal with that, or do you? Do you just let them go through that until it's, you know, until they can come to grips with it? When we, we have, you know, the stages of grief do include anger. I, I feel like they have to get that out. I really do. Even writing a letter to God, don't you think it's okay, Carol? I think it's okay because that gets it out. If they don't go through the grief, even if it's your parent die versus your child, if you never go through the grief, it's not that you were so... I didn't need to grieve. No, you have to grieve. The heart has to grieve. So you have to get it out, and it does come out first in anger always. Say you have a terminal illness that you didn't know you had, and you go to the doctor, and by the way, I have some bad news. You always get angry first at God. You know why? Those who know, know that you know he created us. He holds us in our hand. So his hand. But I think anger for the first stage, Carol, but that is the time, honestly, if you're a close friend, the right words said in a letter are so important. So she will turn it around, but it's important to get it out. I find people that hold it in, they get angry 10 years down the road. So then it's worse because at the initial time is when you should take the time to grieve. And I'll say to women, grieve healthily. If it's your spouse dying or your child, take time to grieve because that's what brings health, the brokenness to the wholeness. If you skip that stage, it's not going to go away. It's not like, okay, I didn't grieve. It comes out later down the road, and it's harder. It's very difficult. There's no easy words. There's no easy way to hike that mountain. There's no easy way. It is a Pat and I will, 20 years later with Zachary, if we start to talk about them with someone that has lost a baby themselves, we begin to cry. Sometimes we begin to weep, and you never know if you know when that's going to happen because it's something that touches you so deeply now i'd like to ask you about your books you've written 40 books young lady yeah big writer but i can't, I can't take credit or about you know i write at, at, in prayer i prayerfully write but i have written books on every different thing i started out when i was a young mother and i wrote books on um like a preschool syllabus. My husband wanted the children at home, and I, I wrote a whole syllabus, which I later used when I taught preschool. I wrote a cookbook, two of them. My mom was a caterer and, and just retired at 80. She's 90 now. And I wrote two, a family cookbook and a cookbook for young mothers, to you know. And I've written Bible studies, of course, and I've written a whole children's series 
some Christian and some non, about life lessons, how to teach your children from toilet training, like one book's called um, Carter Goes Potty, all the way to Temper Tantrum Tarolin for the twos, you know, and then some on things like what the world needs now is love. So different things to teach life lessons to children. And my newest book is called Four for the Mountaintop. It's about the journey that four women take. Me and, and, and my three best friends have gone on retreat twice a year for the last 30 years, and we're going soon. And we wrote a book to help other people because women need women, and they need to get away. And just even if they just sit at the beach and be with each other, to support each other during, if you have a large family, and every day it can be dailiness of laundry and carpools and dishes. And it's through that time when you get alone and just rest up and restore your, yourself, you come back stronger with a new skip in your step and a new smile on your face from just being there, supported by women that you know have your back. So I wrote that recently in a book called The King's Crown. It's a fiction, nonfiction about a, um, about how a crown of jewels goes on your head each time you do a kind deed, a jewel's put in the crown. And then I wrote, of course, that new coloring book, Alive, Healthy, and Fit, about healthy eating and meeting the new girl. That's the two things that's on there. So, yeah, I write all the time, Carol, because I'm a talker and a speaker, but I'm also a I'm also a person that needs time alone just to be quiet and think. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now tell us about your little pink tree. That sounds interesting. Okay, well, my um my blog spot is littlepinkdressministry.blogspot.com, and I'm behind because we just moved that, and I just moved close to one of our children that has six children to help out because her and her husband have embraced a large family, and my mother-in-law did that for us. So I I go on the um littlepinkdressministry.blogspot.com. And I also do a um, thing for women where they can ask me to come out if they go on my blog spot, see the connections, and ask me to come out and speak. And I, I have a team of women, all wise and wonderful women, and we have conferences on anything from, say, um, teens, mom and teens, to ex- about accepting your mother for who she is and not who you want her to be, to just women, a women's conference on whose hat is that, and moms wear every hat from, you know, housemaker to mom, parent, you know, wife, and different conferences are on there under the word Woman Fest, and it's like a one-day kind of retreat for women, and those are the, that's on the blog as well. But like I said, I am behind. That sounds great, and we'll have all that information in the show notes so women can certainly look that up. It'll be on your website. Yes. Okay. I think what I want to say at the end is – um. When you face a mountain in your life, you know, you have to look for people, like we said in the beginning, that have done the journey before you. You have to look for people that, not necessarily your best friend, but someone that is going to stick with you as not a fair weather friend, one that brings the umbrella and the chocolate, you know, the one that's going to be there through the duration. It's one thing to um to say, you know, I'm your friend. Hi, how you doing? But it seems like when you go through a trial in your life, we all know this, all your friends disappear. Are they not your friends? No, they're your friends. Some people can't take the hike. Some people love you when things are good. When things are bad, they don't know what to say when your baby dies or when you are not eating right or when you're depressed. They kind of run away, you know. And so... I just want to say that when you go through a trial, 
someone will be provided to stay. It may not be someone you really were close to before. You'll be provided someone that will walk the journey with you. And I always tell the women that go through really hard times, don't surround yourself at this time with those who are critical or have a lot of correction to give. There's a time for that when you're trying to grow as a in character and virtue. But the time when you go down is when you surround yourself with those who have encouraging words, love, and kindness. And they're going to stick with you like glue till you get to the other side. And oh, what a view. And once you see the view, you'll be able to take others up the mountain in their high heels or in their sneakers, but bring the chocolate. That is a wonderful note and encouragement to close on. And you have touched my heart, and I know you have certainly touched the hearts of the listeners in different areas. And also, the head is spinning on how we can use what you share and your website for helping those that we want to help, whether it's mentoring about any of these areas or even like for myself with my friend who who lost her grandson. So I thank you for all that input and for that encouragement. It was it was great. I really, really appreciate it, Alan. And all of this information will be on the show notes, as I mentioned, and they will be able to contact you, and I know that you will be more than happy to encourage them and talk to them if they want to get in touch with you. Thank you, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.